After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton. And with me, I have from the National Film Board... Albert Ohayon. Uh, he is currently the English Film Collection Curator at the National Film Board, the NFB, and uh, I asked him to go into the archives and pull out some hidden gems, stuff that he wishes more people had seen, and he came back with four movies. Albert obviously knows a lot about movies, and he knows a lot about these movies, and we have a really great chat about it. So it goes a little bit longer, and I decided to make this two episodes as a direct result with two movies each episode. All of the movies are available to watch for free, thank you taxpayers, on the National Film Board, as well as are embedded on the show page at our website, rcmpodcast.com. Okay, so this first episode, we're going to be talking about the two movies, Totem, The Return of the Gospolics Pole from 2003 by Gil Cardinal, and the short film 19 Days from 2016 by Asha Syad and Rhoda Syad. Next week, we're going to be talking about High Grass Circus by Tony Ianzello and Torben Schioler from 1976, and one of my personal all-time favorites, The Defender from 1988 by Stephen Lowe. One last thing. Uh, We now have a Patreon page, Um, just like every other podcaster. We want to stay ad-free. We want to keep giving you all this great unfiltered CanCon, digging up exactly these kinds of hidden gems so you can find the good stuff. But to do that, we need a little bit of help financially. It it helps us keep the business going. It helps us pay for the hosting of the sites. It helps us pay for engineering. Um, So go ahead and have a look at our website, rcmpodcast.com, for a link to our Patreon. If you like what we're doing or you want to chat about the movies, shoot us a message on Twitter. That's at RCM Pod. Without further ado, here's my interview with Albert O'Hayon. First and foremost, if you can just tell me kind of a little bit about your role at the NFB, how you got into it, and your background. I studied uh, film production at Concordia University here in Montreal, and I've been at the NFB since 1984, so a few years, let's just say. Uh, My current role is the English collection curator, so I'm responsible for uh, deciding which films go online on nfb.ca. I'm also responsible for um, programming nfb.ca on the English side. So uh, all the films that we feature, anytime we put uh, channels together, anytime we do special uh, special programming. Uh, I'm also the uh, film expert at the NFB. I've seen about 8,000, a little more than 8,000 NFB films. We often, uh, there's a French curator as well, and we often get questions uh, along uh, the lines of, uh, you know, uh, I'm looking for a film, my grandfather was in it, it was during World War II, and he was in this regiment, and, uh, you know, and I'm sure the NFB shot this film. So, you know, we get a lot of that, or... We also uh, work on many institutional projects where we will talk about uh, the history of the NFB, uh, major films, 
something like that. And we also write for the NFB blog where we will write uh, features on specific films or series or specific filmmakers. So anything really to do with the history of the NFB and its collection. So you've said you've watched thousands of films at this point. How many more little gems do you think are hidden deep in the collection? That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I discover uh, gems quite regularly. I'm still going through it. And we also obviously are watching all the new uh, releases. So uh, it's a good question. I don't know. I'm, I'm here for a few more years. We'll see what happens uh, if I find <laughs> any more gems. If I do, I'll let you know for sure. Uh, there's too many to speak of, obviously. But uh, in, in this particular case, I've narrowed it down to four. Excellent. And I'm so glad that uh, you picked these four. It's a really good cross section of stuff. So let's start with 19 Days from 2016. Now, this is the only short film you picked. Uh, can you tell me why you picked this one and what's it about? Well, first of all, it's a film about uh, the Margaret Chisholm Reset Resettlement Center in Calgary. And it's a center where refugees come. They spend their first 19 days in Canada there. And it's kind of like a transition house for refugees uh, to kind of get them slowly integrated into Canadian society, Canadian culture. Uh, it's a film directed by two Somali sisters, Asha Siad and Rhoda Siad, and they, were, they both came to Canada as refugees from Somalia. So they wanted in the film to put a human face to refugees. I mean, we talk a lot about uh, refugees in the news. It, it's it's a it's very uh, immigration refugees. There's a lot of that over the last few years, anyways. I think here's a a beautiful film that gives a human face to to refugees, and we follow refugees from Burundi. We follow refugees from Syria, from Sudan, and other places, and. It's this huge culture shock coming from these cultures in Africa and Asia and uh, coming to, to, to Canada where, first of all, the weather is completely different, uh, where the language is different, and uh, there's so much new to discover. So we follow several people, several families, as they uh, slowly integrate into Canada. And they, they have more questions than anything else. Obviously, they arrive and... And they want to know what Canada, what what is going to happen to them, what is going to happen to their families, what's going to happen to their children, uh, how are they going to to settle in Canada? And I think the film is a nice peek into what happens to these refugees who come to Canada. And I think I, I said it was a beautiful film. I, I think it's a very beautiful film because it, it's it's a very touching film, and it's, it shows the refugees with a lot of respect, a lot of, it's not never condescending. And there's some absolutely beautiful moments, especially the first time that it snows and uh, these refugees are discovering snow for the first time. And the, the look of wonder in their faces is, is just absolutely beautiful. For me, it's the little guy using hand sanitizer for the first time. And just like the glee on his face, he's like, this is the best. And you're like, that's yeah. awesome. And there's there's some amazing. I mean, I think the culture shock part I think is 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 really interesting too. At one point, they show a family from I'm I'm not sure where. I think they're from Africa somewhere, and they're showing them a shower. And one of the people asks, "Where does the water go after this?" And I, I think that's just showing you 
how far the what kind of a huge difference we're talking about what they're used to and what they're what they're they're being exposed to uh, i think that that's just like a incredible moment something i really love about this movie is how quiet it is but it's still this emotional roller coaster like they don't use narration everything is very fly on the wall uh, you're just seeing moments in these people's lives and there's a lot of people to cover but you don't ever lose track of who anyone is but even Absolutely. then you're seeing the impact of like having to learn how phone bills and utilities work and it's okay. completely different it's something you don't think about living every day it's like oh yeah you just pay your phone bill it's fine exactly it's also you know uh, dealing with with clothing, you know these the, these people are coming from countries where it's uh, it, it never goes below uh, 15 degrees Celsius or or warmer, and you know, we're coming to a country where it's sub zero and there's snow and there's elements and it, it it it's it's an it's a completely different thing for people who don't know uh, people who are used to this, uh, you know we're used to it it's part of our daily lives but when you you've never ever experienced uh, this these kind of uh, temperatures, this kind of weather, it, it, it's like a huge shock to the system. This was released for World Refugee Day on uh, June 20th, and uh, I'm just wondering how often the NFB will release a film to kind of commemorate or um, add to a day like that. We do we do that a lot. Um, in this particular case, uh, pretty much every World Refugee Day, we, we pull it out again and show it because it's such a beautiful film. But we do that, we, we try to our programming on nfb.ca we try to have it make some sense obviously so during uh national indigenous day in canada we did an entire week of programming of indigenous filmmakers you know we'll we'll do uh programming on for international women's day we'll do this type of uh you know uh programming of women filmmakers on earth day we'll do uh, programming on on the environment so we we try to uh, be as close to what's going on and it also if, if something's in the news something's is is trending a lot we'll try and and uh, s suggest films uh, on that topic on our website and on our platforms uh, on our uh, social network platforms like our Facebook page or Twitter how effective do you think a documentary film so something like this would be in getting people to pay attention to an issue or think about an issue as opposed to a fictional film which might be a little bit more escapist you know when when you actually see real people living real events uh, it, it, it it's a different it's a completely different thing you know you're you're seeing what the, you're seeing it through their eyes and uh, here in this particular film, you know, seeing all the the confusion in, in the faces of these people, all the you can see that they're overwhelmed by the culture shock. They're overwhelmed by all these things that are going on. At the same time, they're they're very happy to have escaped, you know, the the war and 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 poverty and other problems that they were dealing with in their home countries. But you you get a chance to to empathize, uh, live exactly what they're living. So I mean, a fiction film, yes, okay, you're going to get an idea. But if, but fiction, we all know, you know, fiction, you can. How many films have we seen based on a true story that are 90% of it is reinvented? I think of the film Argo, for example, and a kid that I really hated because <laughs> of what how they portrayed Canada. They completely reinvented the ending of, of what happened. And, uh, you know, the, this whole business of the Iranian soldiers uh, shooting the doors to, to follow the airplane as it was taking off. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, total, total nonsense. Uh, you know, okay, you, you, there's a bit of creative license in a, in a fiction film, but I mean, they completely twisted the whole uh, 
what what Canada's role was in this particular uh, in this particular affair. So all I'm saying is fiction. You got to take it with a grain of salt. You know, at least documentary, you're seeing what is actually going on, and I think that's it's it's more interesting for for someone to actually watch a documentary and and live the experience as you know as the people actually lived it again it's a very quiet movie but seeing these moments that are incredibly intimate of uh, the guy calling home repeatedly yeah. trying to find yeah. out what's happening in his village and who really who's still alive yeah and he just keeps getting this number is not in service this number is not in service and you just see the look on his face and finally he reaches someone and yeah. the relief in his face and you're like oh man this is you almost feel like it's it's too much like you have to look away like you're invading their privacy absolutely absolutely that that is is a, a very strong moment in the film and, and you're you know as you say he's constantly calling he's constantly having all kinds of problems connecting and then when he actually uh when he actually talks to someone at home and he he's not he's not concerned with his own safety he's like very concerned he uh, with what's going on with the family back home and he even asks the counselor he says can we send money back home and he's his mind is I have to take care of my family back home, and and people who haven't lived that, I I, I don't think we can we can understand the the gravity of of what this poor person is going through. And I mean, so it, it's a it's a beautiful moment in the film because you you finally have this relief. Oh, thank God, he actually reached somebody back home. Yeah, and it's the I mean, this is kind of to combat the they're here to take our jobs. They're they're here to like overtake our culture. They you know in quotes whatever that means. And then you yeah. see this, and you're like, no, these are people that just want to live their lives without fear, like everybody else does. And you're exactly. you're able to finally connect with that, and it's beautiful. Exactly. Ugh, exactly. Ugh, I love it so much. And the next one. You you, you selected um, also deals with a fairly uh, serious subject, uh, talking about repatriation, the return of the Gopsgalics poll. Yes. Uh, this one from 2003, it's uh, Gil Cardinal, who's an Edmontonian like myself. Um, why did you pick this one? Okay, uh, Gil Cardinal is the late Gil Cardinal. Yes. He, he passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, he, he made several films at the NFB. Uh, he was a Métis filmmaker. Uh, I really connected with this film because I I found uh, it very well explains a cultural appropriation. I mean, it, it's a film where we follow uh, the Heisler people from, from BC, from British Columbia, who uh, had a totem pole uh, taken away from them in 1929. It was a, it was a, a mortuary pole. It was, it was put up uh, to mark a grave on top of a grave in in uh, in their village, and uh, the uh, a museum in Stockholm uh, was interested in in buying it, and they made a deal with the Indian agent, and some money went to the village. We don't know how much. I would imagine not very much, uh, and the the pole was taken away and uh, housed in a museum in Stockholm uh, for, for over 60 years. Now, the, the big problem with this, as the, the people, the Heisler people speak, say in the film, these poles, totem poles are not meant to stay up forever. They're meant to go up and eventually they'll fall and they'll go back to Mother Earth, as they put it. This is a religious symbol. This is, as I said, a mortuary pole. It was taken from them and housed somewhere else. It, it, it's basically stolen from them. I mean, it, 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 we're going to say, we're going to call a spade a spade. It was stolen from them. Uh, the, the museum 
at first is not at all interested. In, first of all, I took them. I took them till 1991 to to find where the pole was. That nobody knew where it was, and uh, and and they figured out in 1991 it was housed at this uh, this Stockholm museum. And the museum at first was not interested in giving it back to them. There was a lot of a lot of discussion as of 1991, and what the Heisler people decided is, after discussing with the the museum people, they said, look. We're, we want to, to have the pole back. What, what we're going to do is what we're going to offer you is we will make a replica here. We will ship it to you and we will we'll, we'll install it for you. And, uh, you know, at least you'll have a replica as long as we get back our, our original pole. The, the museum puts a lot of, of uh, conditions on this because they, they want, they feel that they have preserved the pole for so many years uh, in ideal conditions and they want the, the people of the village to uh, construct, to build a, uh, a museum to house the pole so that it will not deteriorate. And what, what the people are saying is, well, yes, that's not, the point of the pole is not to keep it forever. The point is to return it to its its it, where it was originally put up, and let it go back to Mother Earth. But they agree. They agree to 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 do it. And uh, at the end of this film, uh, the pole is not yet returned. But Gil Cardinal made a follow up in 2007 called Totem Return and Renewal, where the pole actually comes back. But what? What's interesting is the journey. What's interesting is the the difference in opinion, the difference in in Western culture versus you know what the Heisler people think, and uh, you know the the fact that this is after all a religious symbol. It is a it is not uh, an artifact that's to be taken and, and displayed uh, everywhere. And what the what the um, the Swedish museum people say is that. At one point at the, in the beginning of the 20th century, anything that was indigenous art was, was all the rage in European museums. So they were, they were scouring Canada and, North, and all over North America to get, to get artifacts to, to move them and, and to, uh, to display them in, in museums all over Europe. You know, that, that begs the question, I mean, can you take away uh, a religious symbol from, from someone, from anyone, and uh, display it without without their consent. And in, in this case, the people never consented to this. The Indian agent, I'm sure, did 90% of the negotiating, and uh, the museum basically got it for a song, you know? The very idea of uh, spiritual items as fashion, as opposed to the respect of what they actually are. And I mean, I think a lot of this film really comes down to the idea of respect and understanding. Absolutely. And uh, I love the moment where the uh, one of the, the gentlemen from Sweden is like, well, why don't you just build a new one? And yeah. they're like, well, you know, why don't you just build a new version of your like Norsemanship from how exactly. many hundreds of years ago? It's the exact same equivalency and that they're not attributing that sort of respect and understanding to their wishes. It, it's fascinating. And I love the way this film is so beautifully set out because it starts out with the emotionality of what the pole actually means. Yes. And then you get the history behind the pole and all the uh, and the story and the legend behind it. And then they go into all the steps that they have to, uh, and all the hoops they have to jump through to be yes. able to get it back. And it is, by the end of it, you are as enraged as they are that it's no. taking so long. You're just like, just give it back, you know? Yes. It's, it's like a big bully who's still someone's ball that their their late father gave to them and it's like 
you don't there's no uh, respect or I'm getting angry as I'm talking about it there's no respect for the sentimentality of that item or the actual meaning or value absolutely there there are two beautiful moments in the film that I really want to point out the first one is when the carvers arrive and see the pole for the first time it's it's a, a moment of of emotion it's a moment of there's a kind of relief and at the same time there's a, 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 a huge sadness because they see that the, it's there and it's attached there and it doesn't look like it's going home anytime soon so uh, but it, it's, a, it's a beautiful moment in the film and another moment for me is when the carvers go to to Sweden and they're finishing the replica pole and they're having conversation with Swedish children and it, it's that beautiful sharing of the culture and uh, explaining what what the poles mean you know uh, the how, how important it is to to the Heisler culture so that that was the, those two moments for me uh, really made the film they were they were very very uh, powerful emotional moments also the shooting of this is so beautiful the opening with all those different angles of the pole and you're seeing all of the details and how beautifully it's carved and there's the music underlying it like it's just it's masterful how it's created and edited absolutely absolutely i i believe this is uh, gil cardinal's best film ever um, he made some very strong films. Foster Child is another one he made, which talks about his own personal experiences as a foster child. And that's a very powerful film. But Totem uh, is, is a, I think, is his masterpiece. And the weaving into it also of talking about the eradication of the art of pole carving. And, you know, we're talking about the 60s scoop. We're talking about residential schools. We're talking about the complete stamping, up, uh, stamping out of everything. But nothing feels shoehorned in or tacked on. Everything no. is like, no, this is, this is what happened. This is the eradication of culture. And this is such, I, I hate to use the word important, but I think it's a very valuable film for right now because we have, of course, the whole thing in the news of like, well, is this a genocide? Is it not? My personal yes. opinion, totally a genocide. And then you see this and you're like, oh, yeah, no, this this ties everything together. And when you watch this, you, you listen and you hear and you understand. And it's crystal clear. It's crystal clear. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think Gil Cardinal is an, uh, was an exceptional filmmaker. He's, he's passed on, uh, and I think uh, he, he made a, a beautiful film here where he uh, allowed people to, to voice. That was part. Of, that was very important. He he showed the resilience of the the people, but he also showed their uh, generosity. The fact that they decided to to make a, a replacement pole and bring it to, to Sweden and and perform ceremonies in Sweden. They didn't have to do that. They did that out of the goodness of their heart, you know. And it took them a long time to get the financing and to be able to uh, to uh, get everything over there. I should. There's there's one funny moment in the film that I I, I absolutely want to point out is when they're trying to ship the uh, the pole to. Uh, to Sweden and they're <laughs> just barely getting it into the airplane. The the aviation fanatic in me had a lot of fun with that. <laughs> I laughed pretty hard at that moment too. It's like, yeah, it's a nine foot pole and no one's nine ever meter. had- Nine, nine meter. meter. Yes, and yeah, yes. And nobody's ever tried to transport that before. And they're like, what are the logistics? It's great. A lot of fun that moment. Now, I do have to ask you, and I know this is a very difficult question, but what do you feel like the role of the Indigenous community has been in the NFB and vice versa? We just talked about Adonarjuat on the on the show a little while ago um, and how that film would not have been made without the help of the NFB. Uh, how do you think those two realms sort of work together? 
Well, I, I mean, if, if you know anything about the history of the NFB, you know that there have been films made about indigenous peoples at the NFB since the very beginning, since the 1940s. But these were films made by non-indigenous people. And uh, they were very much ethnographic films. And I'm doing the air quotes when I say that. Uh, they were, you know, uh, here are, the, here's the North American Indian, you know, as they were called at the time. And, you know, performing their traditional dances, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, they were not, they were not films that were giving a voice to the indigenous, to indigenous peoples in Canada. Uh, as of 1968, there was um, a, a program called the Indian Film Crew, which was where uh, indigenous uh, uh, people were trained as filmmakers to make films. So I think that was a, a really key turning point. Uh, indigenous filmmakers were finally given a chance to make their own films. Obviously, there were, there were you know, it took a long time before that was all, you know, uh, running smoothly, let's just say. And uh, I feel now, at this time, at this stage, the NFB has, uh, has a great program available for Indigenous filmmakers. And there are more and more uh, Indigenous peoples having a clear voice uh, and able to, to talk about their, their lives, their issues, uh, so I, I agree with you. Atarnajwat never would have been made without the help of the NFB. We, we didn't make it ourselves. We were co-producer in, in the project. Uh, but the NFB, I think, has, has played a, a very important role in Indigenous cinema in Canada. We're not the only ones, but we absolutely have played an important role. And I would say definitely since the creation of the Indian film crew, as it was called, in 1968. That's just starting to see actual voices. And then you have the contributions, the unbelievable contributions of Alanis Bomsawin. Her eye is absolutely incredible. I feel like she probably, more than most people, have really contributed to uh, Indigenous culture in Canada for being able to see it, what it actually is. Absolutely. She's uh, uh, had has several awards, including different versions of the Order of Canada. I, I thought there was only one Order of Canada, but I discovered since that she's just been uh, named to another higher Order of Canada. Which is, <laughs> of so that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm extremely happy. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Alanis is not just a, a filmmaker. Alanis is an ambassador for the NFB. And, uh, you know, I mean, she's, uh, we're, we're lucky that she's 86, she's still making films with us. So we're, we're extremely happy. And that she did everything outside of the Studio D system as a woman is just mind-boggling to me. Absolutely, wow. absolutely. Um, her, her early years were not easy at the NFB. And uh, she, uh, she has uh, made some amazing films. Uh, the last thing I kind of want to touch on with this film is it sits in what I would call the traditional style of film for the NFB, where there's a narration, there's talking heads, you see, you get a bit of the story. Um, how did that become kind of the go-to default method for creating documentary in the NFB, which also set the standard for documentary around the world? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I'll agree with you on that. Uh, I think it, it depends uh, of the filmmaker, and it also depends of the story they're trying to tell. I think I think in this particular case, it was very important to have uh, several people from uh, Heisler people 
talk directly to the camera and give their opinions. I think that was absolutely essential. And uh, Gil Cardinal himself narrates the film, and uh, he, he has a very, he's, he, he's not a voice of God narrator. He's very much, uh, uh, you know, very, very calm and he explains things. And uh, I think he chose this method because he felt it best worked for this type of film. But there are many, many NFB films, and I would say probably more with, uh, that are have less talking heads and more about uh, with no narration, you know, uh, as was popular in the films of the of the uh, the sixties and seventies, where where the action unfolds and you follow as you go along and uh, you know and uh, see things as they're happening uh, through the eyes of, of the participants. So, I think it, it really depends on the filmmaker, and uh, some some filmmakers feel that. It's very important to have talking heads. Others don't feel that that's uh, the best way. It's best to just film things as they're happening uh, and, and see it as it's unfolding. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to the show. Or just tell a friend. It helps people find Canadian media they love. We also have a Patreon. So if you'd like to be a donor and help us keep the show going, visit us at rcmpod.com, on Facebook, or on Twitter, at rcmpod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart, and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.